Welcome to Doing Sustainability, a podcast that features practical and actionable approaches to sustainability, brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we have enlightened conversations with corporate and business leaders on the vision, motivation, actions, and impacts of sustainability. We discuss best practices, fresh perspectives, tips, and solutions to help a company demonstrate its ESG commitment and position themselves for long-term success. Hi, I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's start the show. Today, we're talking with Janine Malone. Hello, Janine. Hi, Gary. How are you today? Good. Good. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Janine is a fashion executive and innovator whose results-driven nature, unwavering compassion, and ambition have all earned her the reputation as a service-centered thought leader. I like that, Janine. Thank you. Over the last three decades, she's cultivated a in-depth expertise in the area of global sourcing, product development, technology innovation, production, and business analysis. Furthermore, her forward-thinking leadership and cutting-edge creativity enable her to implement pioneering solutions that maximize brand objectives and overall profitability. Yes. (laughs) Janine is the Managing Director and Chief Sustainability Officer at Fashion for Development, World Collective, and we'll talk about that in these positions. She's also a sustainability editor at Page Magazine and the president and founder at Zero to Hero Foundation. She worked for over a decade at Calvin Klein as VP of Supply Chain and Senior Director of Global Sourcing and Innovation Production. Janine holds a multitude of volunteer advisory and mentor roles. You kind of get the idea here. She's a very yeah. accomplished. <laughs> so, Janine, a couple of things. What was your path to arrive here? And maybe we'll start with what were your interests and passions as a very young person? Okay, well, that draws back a lot of things. I kind of, to be honest with you, I fell into the fashion industry because of, I guess, need or want. I, I grew up in New York and one of the opportunities for me was to attend Fashion Institute of Technology. One, it was a reasonably priced university and I really didn't have an idea where I wanted to go. I just wanted to be kind of in the creative field and I kind of came out of Catholic academic high school and I knew I just did not want to be a secretary and administration assistant. So I kind of veered in and I just stumbled into FIT and because of the financial reasons I had to work. So I got a job in the fashion industry and continued my education. And so that's kind of really how I stumbled upon it. It really was just a necessity. And that's really where I ended up. And I was very, very lucky in the beginning of my career to work for so many amazing companies. I started with a fabric company in Lake Como. And then I went to work for a Maison in Paris. And from there, I really just started to travel the world. And at a very young age, was bitten by the opportunity that I was given and the freedom. And it cultivated a big, I guess, bite in me or a need to travel and see the world and to kind of connect with people. And I loved the opportunity that I could wear beautiful things and be part of such an amazing group of people. So 
it's kind of where I ended up. And over my years and career, I lived in many different countries, including South Korea and Hong Kong, India, Turkey, Germany, and all because of the work that I was doing in these different companies. And I think because I was just eager to see and I was just absorbing everything, I just kind of worked through, I guess, the sector that's not the normal track of a fashion person. So I kind of was a pioneer, I guess, in some ways. I was very young when I went overseas and I came back only about 20 years ago. I spent, you know, half of my career over in either developing countries or existing markets or kind of building capabilities. And what happened was that I realized um, really in India when I was living there, the impact of what the fashion industry was doing and there I, I really kind of kicked off what Zero to Hero was going to be about as an executive and running a lot of the business opportunities and developing a lot of the business opportunities for such a young person, such a big country with such big operations. I really did see the impact not only on the people socially, but also the environmental opportunities that we could really do something. So my interest has always been product development, trying new things, encouraging opportunities, seeing where there's ways to build new business models. And that really was where my passion for innovation and sustainability connected, where I thought, well, I, we could do this better. There's a lot of opportunity. And if we just put our minds to it, we could develop better processes. We can use better materials. We can help the people rather than just leaving a treacherous mark everywhere we went to buy and find the cheapest way to manufacture clothing. So kind of where I started, I started not really in an elegant way in fashion, but I started building toilets for women in the tribal regions of India because they really did not have the support. And so that's really where my journey began. And I started to really push the efforts through companies that I was working with, PBH Corp, and many of the brands that are under that umbrella. And I really worked on innovation and I was really successful, even with very, I guess, what you say, a very politically charged company and lots of stakeholders. There was a really hard to get new things implemented, new innovations. And really what was driving them was really the bottom line. So I worked there and I developed what I could and innovation and sustainability became my mantra, really where I wanted to do. And about just before COVID, I decided to leave corporate life. And I was working a lot with the United Nations on a lot of different projects with Fashion for Development. I had been working with them for about 10 years, wherever I could spend my time. Obviously, with my career, it was very, I was traveling a lot. It was, it was quite challenging, but I always wanted to give back and I always wanted to help or use my resources or my network or my capability to do something a little bit more and have more impact. And really, ultimately, what I realized is that maybe if I left one corporation, I might have a bigger impact outside. And I thought I had been in corporate fashion for more than 30 plus years. And I thought maybe this is the time now where I could really have much more opportunity to do much more than I have been able to do in the last 10 years. So I left. I went to Davos. I was really getting excited about a lot of different projects and I was speaking at the World Economic Forum and we were really charged up to get there. I fly back from Davos and COVID strikes. So that's where we ended <laughs> yeah. in that. But we have a lot of great stories to come from what happens 
and what we were able to do with the downturn of COVID. So I'm good. You're very active. You mentioned Zero to Hero Foundation, which you're the founder of, and you started in 2011. Yeah. Tell us about what you do in that foundation. So it's not as active as I can be now because I'm really working on a lot of other nonprofits. I do say that I still have it active in, in some ways. For the most part, what I really did was I wanted to show that fashion companies and manufacturers that if you invest in the people, for instance, cotton is a commodity-driven crop, you invest in not having them migrants changing crops based on costs for five cents another commodity that if you build community, if you help them with education, if you help them with resources, they will continue to buy and stick with you and have loyalty and building community. So I worked and I partnered with Arvind, which is one of the bigger manufacturers in India, in Gujarat. And we worked with uh, Puneet Lalbahai, who's a fantastic philanthropist and really active in India and doing a lot of things. And we started to say, what can we do for the Better Cotton Initiative that we were working on to really support the people? And as a woman in India, it's very hard, well, really, to use the facilities. And I saw the women, the widows, the young women, the young girls who were fearful of their lives a lot of times when they have to, in these regions, use the facilities that they need to use, especially with all the men around in the day. So I really felt that not being really sexy or not being really exotic was that really facilities are just a human, basic human need. And if we could help to support that and to start building and seeing that there's opportunity for people, they might have a better opportunity to to really stick with what we were trying to build in the community and commit to better facilities, better education systems for the kids because the husbands would leave and the women would be working. And it was just a cyclical situation of really bad effects happening on family. So that's really where we started the Zero to Hero Foundation. And it's what I really want to do is to drive and go back to that, which is I believe that there's just so much that can be done in that space. We use these facilities, we use the people, but we don't appreciate the value chain in which yeah. Our products are made. Right. I was just going to say that the uh, partnerships and collaboration really are a part of the traceability and building the reliability and the better practices for environmental and for social with your product providers. I mean, with correct things. So, I mean, I think that obviously you were doing it way before it became mainstream. And the pressure for companies to even have that traceability in in scope three. But in fact, all these things really are important and work together. So, you know, the education and the advocacy, I mean, it's all a part of building that community, which builds that loyalty and yes. the the drive to better themselves, to continuous improvement. And I think that it's just that that right has to be human right, you know, that we need to be clear that everything that we buy has that value proposition, that we feel clear-minded that these people are being supported throughout that process. 
tilling lands, planting seeds, being really your reliability on agriculture is very hard life. And we take for granted that every piece of cotton that we get, we can toss out and treat very poorly. But if we knew and if people were educated enough to understand how much work goes into that beginning process, maybe there would be some value in how we buy, how we create, how we own, how we share things in the world. Right. Well, I mean, that dark side of fast fashion, it fortunately is becoming forefront for people. That consciousness, especially in the younger generation, is starting to evolve. And with the companies where there's pressure, there's definitely pressure for them to change processes of, you know, the environmental damage, uh, labor exploitation, the what the alternative models are and consumer responsibility. I mean, to really instill in people to understand that the bottom line is not, it's got to be profit, people, and planet. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the way it's going. But I find it interesting that with the companies that you worked for, I mean, there are some leaders with sustainability and the products, you know, that are coming out of that. One thing that sort of concerns me is, and it's ironic because what you're talking about are the people who are making it possible in India and with agriculture and with various things. But, you know, sometimes I worry that the sustainability products that are on the market are more for the affluent. I mean, they're usually more expensive. And, you know, how do we make that accessible to everybody? Yeah, well, I guess that's the value proposition that you're talking about. I mean, there's there's an extreme, right? So it's either cheap and throw away, which are filled with fossil fuels and extracted and used and thrown away and just clogging up the lands, the oceans, just everything that you can imagine because they don't biodegrade. They, they're not hospitable to our, our lands. So the extraction process coming out, how much we waste there. And then to the extreme of how expensive it is on some luxury levels where it's aspirational for people, even the poor people, to want to feel that they need to be accepted by wearing some of these clothes. That I feel like this. what I'm seeing right now is this juxtaposition happening, which I've never seen really happen in my 35 years in the fashion industry, is that this Gen Z is really making an impact. They're making the change. I'm kind of inspired by it in the sense that they, it's going to take a while, but they want to connect. They want a community. They want to connect. They want a storyline. They want to be able to, and I think that has to do, you know, more and more with like TikTok and Instagram and stories, but if you can't tell the story about what you're wearing or you can't connect or you don't have something to say about it, and they're super individual, which I think that is a really interesting site where I think you start to see more interesting companies coming in the mid-level there, which I think can also impact much more on the sustainability stories because they can be driven by not just environmental, but social programming. They can do better they can commit to causes. They can be transparent. So legislation is a huge part of this. You know, legislation and what's happening in the world is the only way that companies, because the fashion is not regulated in any way. And mm-hmm. so what you see in Europe has to be mirrored here in the U.S. We are so far behind. But 
there's a group of really dedicated people working on the Sustainability and Fashion Act. You start to see some things out in California happening on social and labor. But what's happening in the EU will be the trigger that hopefully changes what's the future of the fashion industry is going to be. And hopefully they New York State passes this New York in Fashion Accountability and Sustainability Act because supply chain transparency is the only way to really unlock and share what these people are doing. And when you can't hide behind these OPEG processes anymore, you'll start to see people really take action, I think. Well, it might be more expensive, but I think that being more expensive is not a bad thing in this time. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's the next generation of fashion designers. I was just reading this article, talk about incorporate eco-consciousness, Afrofuturism, a cultural heritage into their designs. There's a whole lot of yes. consciousness coming through designs, which is what we need, but on a mass scale. And then I see the fashion houses. These the brands have gotten so huge and the yes. fashion houses have gotten so powerful. It's just, you know, there's this almost... Post- well, LVMH, I mean, the owners are one of the wealthiest people in the world and right? their net is just beyond... Um, yeah. <laughs> they really control most of and everything. So in that space, I believe that there's that pyramid, if you look at it in a pyramid sale, this very low price, you know, the fast fashion, the Forever 21, the H&Ms, the whatever. But the levels in between are what where we really need to build out. The reverse of the pyramid needs to go. <laughs> I think that on the top line, there need to be more opportunities besides carrying an LVMH, but, you know, and Richemont, but I mean... There's some of them that are are doing it better than others. But on the mid-levels, I think that's where the wider pyramid needs to go and it needs to invert itself so that the fast fashion portion is a very small portion at the bottom of the pyramid to maybe help people who are really struggling or something that needs to be. But it should not be the aspirational opportunity where people need to change their fashion every single day. And that's where we're really talking about it at Fashion for Development next week on the UNGA. We're kicking off some really amazing new initiatives. We'll be launching uh, Global Runway, which is going to be an amazing new, I guess, initiative brands. It's really about preserving culture. It's going back to the basics where when the art of manufacturing was an art, we're using cultural references and preserving cultural artisans is really about expanding where the fashion industry can go. And you see strips of that when you see like the Chanel show that went to Mexico or, you know, using the Mexican embroidery and the art of fashion, it needs to go back. It needs a reset. And what we really hope to do and to drive these initiatives is not only offering real capability in fashion for development, but on the world collective, which is what we decided to do during the COVID break when we really wanted to work and decided that only all of these new innovations, all the new things that are being offered are only offered to the 20% of the fashion industry that is the top 20%, right? So the LVMHs, the PVHs, the VFs, and then the 80% of the entire is SMEs and no one is supporting the SME model. And the SMEs are 80% of the total fashion industry have a huge impact globally and they're not getting any notice. So this is what we built at the World Collective, which was 
to figure out how to develop a platform of transformational supply chain, meaning not just to give you ideas of to be sustainable. What I realized in working is that, especially in supply chain, you need to give people actual tools to do the job. So what we did was we negotiated economies of scale. So for SMEs to even compete in a level for the big guys, they have testing, they have compliance, they have materials, they can't get the new things because they maybe can't hit the minimum quantities. So they don't have access because they're small guys in the big pond. They don't have a carbon accounting. They don't have transparency and traceability software. All of these things you can get on the World Collective now. You become a member as a nonprofit. Okay. And we yeah. negotiated the 50% off on all of these. Yeah, so what we're doing is scaling up now. We're waiting for grants and funding. But as we do, we're bringing suppliers on. We're bringing brands on. We're really scaling the capability to say, through economy of scale, we could speak at the same level. And we could be at the table as well. And also we could support an industry of really amazing creative people who are not getting recognized or can't survive because the bigger guys are knocking them out or the faster, cheaper people are knocking them out because their designs are so creative or thoughtful or take you know months to create. So what we're trying to do is support the SMEs of the fashion industry and not even just fashion, it's lifestyle. So could be homes, textiles, it could be anything that you're wearing, anything that you live upon. So transparency and traceability is really an unlock here. Understanding your carbon footprinting, just like you do when you go to order a McDonald's. Do you know what it is that you have in your product? Our particular firm, we have been, we started our company with annual reports. It, then eventually we started doing uh, health and, and safety reports for some of our clients. Right and reports, which then became sustainability reports, and now into ESG reports. And what's happened and what we've seen is sort of like corporate spin, the narratives about all the good things that they're doing selectively as we move towards the ESG reports. Now we really have that concrete data. And yeah. that's when a really transparency builds. So it's exciting to see us get there because, and the companies, I wasn't, I mean, when the business roundtable came out with the difference, you know, with the new statement of purpose for corporation, I think that pushed things a little, but the interest or it's really the investors and the asset managers, you know, where they basically said long-term health and growth of a company is going to be tied to a lot of the ESG non-financial information. So to me, it's all coming together. And the fact that even with reputation and damage to your brand, for us, because we also are involved with corporate brand, it's really a convergence. Yeah. It all. And it's a very, very exciting time because it is about creating a greater good than being the problem, being a part of the problem. Well, yeah, I'm eager because I really do believe the next generation are really going to be the catalyst to making the switch that we need in this world. I was disheartened for many, many years by not getting a lot of traction in the work that I was doing or aware. And then everyone's just started buzzing words with it. And that really bothered me because it really wasn't in the heart. The work wasn't really being done there. And what I see now is 
this generation is really aware. They're, they understand what their future looks like. And I think they will be able to take the necessary action that maybe we couldn't do. They seem to be very in tune with their values. and Yes, absolutely. They want to do business with people with uh, share these common beliefs and values. And yeah. that's extremely important for them today. Well, they also want to buy from companies. That's what Gary's talking about. But they want yeah. to for companies like that. And so we all, we see with involved with corporate branding and employer branding is a part of that. We see that the fact that companies are afraid that they won't be able to recruit the top talent and have the effective workforce that they need to compete in the future is also coming into play. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think so, because I think even like whether you are a believer or admirer of social media, it really is somewhat of an impact for these guys to communicate in a different level. I mean, politically, they're much more aware than I know I was. <laughs> and then at their time, you know, a lot of them are going to have impacts for next year's election or already doing it now in different states around the country. But I think that they're understanding the bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, they really have, a, they know what fake news means and I think their barometers are a little bit more heightened than even yep. our generations would, would be, you know, the younger millennials or the Gen X or, of course, even the boomers. But like they really understand how to communicate in a different way and how to activate differently. They're far more astute in what's happening, I mean, environmentally, socially and I think politically and it's kind of like the renaissance of the 60s, I guess, you know, they have, we keep turning the times again. So I think that this is kind of a shock. It will be a shock for many, I think, coming forward. But I think companies that are not taking this seriously, they might as well just pack up and be done because I think they're not going to be able to compete when, when push comes to shove, if they're not actively making the changes internally in their business models, they will not be able to survive. So, Janine, we're going to do this podcast again in five years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there, you know. <laughs> I might be sitting somewhere else, but it's certainly not going to be the global south. <laughs> I'm probably moving north ahead of the time, and I'll be up sitting somewhere and maybe in my art studio somewhere. I'm, yes. I'm glad to hear that. So, what will we be talking about in five years? What do you think will have changed? I think we're going to see huge emergence of, of course, the elimination or actually the reduction of fossil fuels. I think you're going to see that electric and other environmentally preferenced materials and innovations are going to be the top line. I do believe the fashion industry is going through a huge reset. It hasn't been done since the Industrial Revolution. It's really time for something to happen here. Um, I think the way we produce, yeah, the way we produce, the way we do things, and very, these guys are individuals at the next generation. And I believe that customization, individuality, story time, you know, there might be even the future of customizing their own clothing as it relates to them buy materials that they can use and then reprocess in some other way. Circularity, of course, needs to be something. But what does circularity mean? I have a conversation with that on Friday. How do you navigate the circular business model? And is that really true? And how can it actually happen? But there's lots of new materials and innovations coming out. I think what you see is hopefully the reduction of polyesters 
nylons, things that are really heavy reliant on fossil fuels or the change of those fossil fuels into biotechnology. And so I think materials, whether that's in your car, your apartments, where you, what you're wearing, I think materials in general are going to be changing. I hope to see that things have a circular purpose in whatever version of circularity you, you kind of might think that is. I think customization, slowing things down, maybe creating something that is a closer to home model than this huge manufacturing model that we have right now that's still old and outdated since the 80s, considering when China came into the WTO. I think everything is moving right now. There's a lot of moving parts. I think people who, everyone ran to China, everyone ran to Southeast Asia, everyone ran to India, everyone ran to Africa, everyone ran. It's all coming back now. Everyone's going back to Mexico, Central America, even America. I think American manufacturing comes back in some sort of capacity, hopefully with clean energy, with clean manufacturing yes. processes, yes. all those things. Yes. I, I guess one of the criteria that I sometimes am interested in in companies is how much is being spent on R&D of sustainable future for that? Not even 1% of the entire, as an innovation lead, as someone who is working in that, I can tell you a very small amount of budgets are put into innovation. What you do have, though, are some kind of plug and play resource opportunities who are funding some things. But what happens is that's the scalability problem that we have. You might have these interesting technologies, but if these companies, large ones, are not, they fund the innovation, but they never adopt it or scale it. So what I'm trying to hope to do and maybe this is just a long kind of dream, is really to help the SME community mobilize and crowdfunding and crowdsourcing and crowd sponsoring new innovations where we can pick up some of that because they're much smaller and agile, risk adverse. They can try the new technologies in a better way than some of the large companies. They're titanics. They're trying to refit the plumbing and put in Wi-Fi. It really sometimes doesn't work. You need to build your own model outside of that for innovation process and pipelines to really work. Yeah, yeah. That, that's sort of interesting because one of the things that I was fascinated, I was reading about Nike and their development and sustainability, uh, R&D and da-da-da, and just that our own experience of knowing that a company needs to have it integrated in their business plans, and it really does lead to innovation, innovation, new revenue streams. And sometimes... I could imagine that these big companies who can't implement it within their own products, but they can create a new profit center with something, some kind of material or something they develop, and it could go out to these smaller SMEs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that maybe that is a way that it all starts to change faster. I do. I think, I mean, listen, it's ripe for disruption. They're not going to disrupt themselves, but the disruption has to come from outside or, and people who are willing. What I see some success is people who are not really from the fashion industry coming in and doing brands that right. have nothing to do with, they're doing it much better. Yeah, I think that's they, where the disruption They're not caught up in it. Because they, <laughs> because they think different, right? Yes. They don't have the same old, well, we've always done it this way, sort of thinking about it completely coming from left field or right field or wherever, they're coming into it with a completely fresh perspective. 
So absolutely. Great. Yeah. Janine, I know this is a very busy week for you. We so greatly appreciate your time. <laughs> I thought this was going to be interesting and uh, at a learning event. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I really look forward to it. And uh, yeah, climate week. Let's see. Hopefully we get some more action. All right, guys. Have a great day. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening. This is just a reminder to follow Doing Sustainability wherever you get your podcast. And please leave a rating and review if you like the show. It helps others discover us. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to learn more about our agency, Baker, and how we can help you build your corporate brand, align your culture, and evolve your ESG reporting, head to bakerbrand.com. See you in the next episode of Doing Sustainability, where we focus on practical and actionable approaches to sustainability to create long-term value.